Hey, my name is Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's message. Uh, I hope that it's encouraging to you and inspiring to you. I hope that it causes you to dive deeper into the scriptures. And I hope that you're able to do that with some people around you, with some community. Um, but if you don't have that, we would love to invite you into the community here at Restore. If you want to take a next step, get more connected, you can just go to restoreaustin.org connect, fill out a card on there, and I will personally reach out to you in the days after you do that. And if you want to grab coffee with me or just get more information about the church, I will make myself available to you for that. As you will hear, we are in this thing called a year around the table, and it really comes from this vision that God's given us that Restore would be a place where anyone has a seat at the table and everyone experiences the extravagant love of Jesus. So A, I hope that you experience the extravagant love of Jesus as you check this message out. And B, if you don't have a table to sit at, we want to invite you to Jesus' table here at Restore. We are going to start this morning uh, the message with actually a little time of prayer. Um, I, I know the, the weight, the heaviness that a lot of us came into this room with, just personal stuff, but also what's happening uh, all across our country and our world. Um, I think about the 13 servicemen and women, um, U.S. servicemen and women who passed away this week in the bombing in Kabul. Um, average age of 22. 169. Afghan civilians in that same bomb. We have the ongoing pandemic. We have the devastation that's occurring in Haiti. We have the hurricane heading toward New Orleans right now. It's a lot. It's a whole lot. And so I just want to take a minute, and I, I'm actually not going to pray out loud. We're all just going to kind of bow our heads and pray in our own way, our own time and space. I just want to create a moment in time for you all to exhale, to breathe, and to lay these things before the throne of our Father God. Because that's what he asks us to do. He says, cast all your cares and anxieties upon him, because he can handle it. When Jesus was on earth, he said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. So that's what we're going to do. So just take a moment. Bow your heads. Let's pray together. Lord God, we are here before you now in this room and, and people watching online literally all over the world, even close, very close to places who are really struggling. We come before you as this church family just asking you to help, to intervene. You are a God of peace, a God of shalom, a God of goodness, as we just sang about. So we pray that you would 
enter into this time and this space and do what only you can do, both in our hearts and minds, but, but also like really tangibly in the world, that you would do something, and you would use us or other folks to do your work. God, we trust you. We love you. We lay all of this at your feet. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I've said before that my favorite story that Jesus ever told is probably the prodigal son. I don't think that's a great name for it. I think the lost son is actually my favorite name for it, but the prodigal son. And even if you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, or even if you don't have much church background, chances are you've probably heard it, right? It's a story about a father who has two sons. He's got an older son and a younger son. And the older son is very obedient, does everything the father tells him to do. He works in the fields. He, he does exactly what he's supposed to. But the younger son, not exactly. The younger son kind of does his own thing. And he actually gets so fed up with having to be a part of the father's household and getting in trouble for not doing what he's supposed to be doing that he goes to his father and he basically says, I wish you were dead. I want my inheritance. I don't want it later. I want it now. Give it to me and I'm just going to go away. And the father does it. The father divides his estate up, probably involved selling parts of his estate, gave the inheritance to the younger son. The younger son takes it away to the far country, is what scripture says, and just squanders it in a very short period of time. And he's so devastated, he's so low that he's actually working at a farm. He has no food. He's feeding the pigs, and he's eating the food that he's feeding to the pigs just so that he can have some sustainment. He finds himself in a low place. And so he kind of works up the courage to go back home to his dad and apologize, say, I'm so sorry. That actually says, I'm so sorry. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired men. Just put me on the payroll. I'll do whatever it takes. I just need food. I need shelter. I need help. And the dad, we don't know this exactly until later in the story, but he's been waiting and watching every day, looking over the horizon, praying and hoping that his younger son would come home. And so when he finally does, it's, I think, one of the most beautiful pictures in all of Scripture. The son comes over the horizon. The dad sees him and takes off to meet him. They wore these big flowing robes back in the day, especially kind of men who were in charge of households, so he, he had to, would have to pick it up, very undignified, and sprint as far as he could, as fast as he could, to get to his younger son. And his younger son is kind of startled by all of this, right? He's a little taken aback, and so he, but he remembers, like, I've rehearsed this apology, so let me start to say it. And he gets about four words into the apology, and the dad cuts him off and goes and tells his servants, Bring the finest robe, put it on him. Put the ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Oh. It gets me every time. So beautiful, just unconditional love and forgiveness and acceptance. Doesn't even let his son apologize. Just forget all that. You're home now. Beautiful, beautiful story. Now, if you have a lot of church background, you may know that this story is actually the third of three stories that Jesus tells back to back to back. The other two are called the lost sheep and the lost coin. One's about a shepherd who leaves his 99 sheep to go look for his one who is lost. 
And the other is about a woman who scours her house looking for one lost coin. Jesus tells these three stories to teach us about God's deep love for humanity. God is the father who welcomes his kid home with love and forgiveness and acceptance. He's the shepherd who leaves behind everything to go find his one lost sheep. He's the woman who will turn her house upside down to try to get her coin back. And we are the lost son, the lost sheep, the lost coin. So valued by God that he'll stop at nothing to lavish his love upon us. Christians talk about these stories a lot. Pastors preach about these stories a lot. But we don't often talk about what was happening when Jesus told them. Now, you probably know that Jesus kind of traveled all over the place doing a lot of teaching, preaching. Sometimes to just handfuls of people and sometimes to crowds of over 20,000. And during these times, Jesus told a lot of stories like the ones we just looked at. But he actually isn't in the middle of teaching when he tells these three stories. He's in the middle of eating. He's not in the middle of teaching. He's in the middle of eating. He's not standing behind a pulpit. He is seated at a table. The setting is recorded in chapter 15 of Luke's account of Jesus' life. Here it is from Eugene Peterson's translation called The Message. It says, By this time, a lot of men and women of questionable reputation were hanging around Jesus, listening intently. The Pharisees and religion scholars were not pleased, not at all pleased. They growled, he takes in sinners and eats meals with them, treating them like old friends. And their grumbling triggered this story. So Jesus goes on right after the grumbling and tells the three stories. So I want you to picture this scene in your mind. Jesus is sitting around a table surrounded by people of questionable reputation or simply notorious sinners. That's what other translations call them. These were people who did bad stuff, and everyone knew they did bad stuff. And it's not just a few of these notoriously questionable people. Jesus is surrounded by them. So many that I imagine they have to keep kind of scooting over and scrunching in so another one can sit down at the table, and another one can sit down at the table, and another one can sit down at the table. And then a few feet away stands a group of religious leaders looking down their noses at Jesus and his friends around the table. Can you believe? This man eats with these people. Can you believe he treats them like friends? Sharing a table with someone society deems unworthy is not a great look for us today in our culture and society, but in the first century Jewish culture, it was a really bad thing. Listen to how Pastor Malcolm Smith describes it. In our Western culture, our first thought in eating is to satisfy hunger. There may be other reasons we eat, but essentially we eat together because it is mealtime and we are hungry. But in the countries of the Middle East, eating was and still is a relational event. One ate bread to declare, establish, nurture, and seal a covenant relationship. To eat with someone was called table fellowship and meant that the persons eating at the table now stood in covenant solidarity with each other. So for Jesus to eat with tax collectors, with these notorious sinners, was not a social blunder done in ignorance. It was not a political gaffe of a newcomer to religious politics. No, he ate with them intentionally in a deliberate public act, sending a clear message that he knew could not be misinterpreted by anyone. He was announcing that he was a friend, that he was in covenant relationship, that he stood in solidarity with tax collectors and sinners and questionable people. 
This is why the religious leaders judged Jesus so severely. They could not believe he would knowingly and deliberately enter into covenant friendship with those considered unclean. You see, the religious leaders, they wanted to police God's table. Deciding who was worthy to sit at it and who wasn't. But Jesus changed all that. He made room at the table for anyone and everyone who wanted to sit with him. Honestly, I'm, a, I'm grieved, I'm frustrated by how little has changed in the last 2,000 years. Because you see, far too many church leaders are still trying to police God's table. Still building walls to keep people out. And it is just as antithetical to the way of Jesus today as it was in the first century. I love how Tim Keller says it. Jesus' teaching consistently attracted the irreligious while offending the Bible-believing religious people of his day. Our churches do not have this same effect, which can only mean one thing. We are not declaring the same message Jesus did. That's good, huh? But thankfully, Jesus is still at work today, too. He's still knocking down walls. He's still making room at God's table for anyone and everyone who wants a seat. You see, what so many religious leaders then and now don't understand is that the table does not belong to them. I want to say that again because this is important. The table does not belong to them. The table does not belong to any of us. We don't get to decide who is allowed to have a seat and who isn't. The table belongs to Jesus, and he has made it abundantly clear who gets to sit with him. Absolutely anyone who wants to. And he's willing to get in trouble with the religious people for it. That's how committed he was. He was willing to break Old Testament laws to make it happen. That's how committed he was to this It is important to consistently and constantly remind ourselves of this truth so that we don't misunderstand who we are in the story. You see, a lot of times, I'm guilty of this, I don't know about you, but I like to think I'm Jesus in the story, you know? (laughs) Like, whoa, (laughs) look, at he's doing some crazy things. Maybe I could do that, yeah? Like, he's teaching to this great group. I could teach to a big group. It would be awesome. I'm never Jesus in the story. Like, I need to get that. We are not Jesus in the story. In this story specifically, we are either the people humbly seated at his table or we are those trying to police it and standing in judgment. Those are the two options that we have. We are either the people who realize just how questionable we really are and are seated humbly with him at his table or we are those looking down our noses in judgment and trying to police it. And Jesus tells three stories back to back to back right afterwards to say kind of who is in the right place and who is in the wrong one. Here at Restore, we have decided to be the former, the people who humbly sit at Jesus' table. And that's why our vision is to be a place where anyone has a seat at the table and everyone experiences the extravagant love of Jesus. A place where anyone has a seat at the table and where everyone experiences the extravagant love of Jesus. When I say this is our vision, this is what we hope to be. This is our desire. And based on that vision that we believe God has given us, today we are kicking off our year around the table. So we want to be this place, right, where anyone has a seat at the table. So that's what we're doing, kicking off 
a year around the table. So we're going to fit, spend this fall and spring walking through what it looks like to embody this vision as a church family. You see, instead of just talking about it, we're going to discover practical ways to live it out in each of our lives and in the life of our church family. I want to show you all something that we have been using as a staff and leadership team here at Restore for the past two years. It's called our vision frame. This is what it looks like. Vision frame. Nailed it. So you see there in the middle, that is the vision statement. Now, if you've been around Restore, you may have seen this before. Like, we've given out some of our leaders and staff members and people in different positions and stuff. So you may have seen this, but others of you, it may be new. So I want to kind of walk through it with you. In the middle, there's the vision statement. Anyone has a seat at the table, and everyone experiences the extravagant love of Jesus. That's what we're trying to be. That's kind of where everything comes together. And then working clockwise, starting at those top right corner, you see the mission statement. Restoring faith in Jesus and the church. This is kind of what we want to wake up thinking about every day. We want to kind of rally everything else around. We realize that a lot of people have lost faith in Jesus and the church. And so we want to help people regain it. So next, you move down there to the strategy. You see it's just really three simple things. Gather, grow, volunteer. Gather, grow, volunteer. Gather is what we're doing right now. Volunteering is what you saw that CG talked about earlier, all the different things we do in the city, and it's what a lot of you are doing this morning. Set up and tear down, the band, production, connection team, kids team, all of that stuff. That's volunteering. And then growing is how we grow together as followers of Jesus. We do that in one-on-one relationships and in restore groups and all, all kinds of different ways. We are a church that is about simplicity. We don't want to over-program people or overburden people. We believe that the work of the church, God's work, happens all over the place. So we want to equip you to go out and share the love of Jesus with everyone around you, not pressure you into being involved in religious programming like five or six nights a week. That's not the goal. So that's why our strategy is so simple. Now moving around the corner there, you see our core values. Grace, authenticity, diversity, and partnerships. These are things we talk about all the time. We've talked about partnerships as a value this morning. When people ask me, you know, kind of like, what, what are the things that your church really cares deeply about, right? We talk about Jesus, and we talk about love, and we talk about all those big things, but then we get granular and talk about these four values, these things that I think kind of set us apart, things that make us a little bit purposefully different. I tell that to people all the time. I don't think Restore is unique, but we are purposefully different. I did a sermon series on these four things back in 2017. If you ever want to go back and find those, YouTube, Vimeo, or the podcast, you can. And then lastly, up there in the top left corner are something called measures. Now, these are simply the markers of someone who is seated at Jesus' table and doing everything they can to follow him. The markers of someone who's seated around Jesus' table doing everything they can to follow him. And since we don't just want to talk about this God-given vision, we actually want to be about it, these six measures are what we're going to spend the fall and spring walking through during this year around the table. So as we kick it off today, I want to give you a quick preview of what we'll be talking about for each of them. So the first one is, I depend on Jesus. This measure is the foundation upon which every other measure and really the entirety of the Christian life is built. Jesus is our source of life and goodness. John 15, 5 says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit, but apart from me, you can do nothing. 
So depending on Jesus means acknowledging our own weaknesses and shortcomings instead of just pretending we can do everything in our own power. And our inability to measure up to God's standards of love and holiness, we have to realize it's not met with scoffing or anger. Because God, who is the definition of love, looks upon us with compassion. He never turns his back on us. He always picks us up when we fall. And our dependence on Jesus, it leads us away from the things that hurt us. Pride and fear. This is not to say that we'll no longer struggle with things. But that dependence on Jesus is this ongoing solution to the brokenness in our personal lives and in our world. To depend on Jesus is to surrender our will, what we want to do, to the will of God. Now, there's no common prescription kind of for what this looks like for each individual person. It's the beautiful work of God in every heart as he leads us to trust his goodness and to depend on his strength every moment of our lives. So that's I depend on Jesus. We're going to do an entire series unpacking that, putting practical things in place for what it looks like for us. Next is I'm a part of the family. See, Christianity is a communal faith meant to be lived alongside one another. Whether you are here in the room, whether you are in greater Austin, or whether you are watching online, a part of the Restore Online community all over the place, we are meant to live alongside one another. This is important. The church is a family of siblings. It isn't meant to be hierarchical, with some serving as parents and others serving as children, but with all of us being brothers and sisters under the headship of Jesus. But living out a communal faith in a hyper-individualistic society is not easy. It means rejecting the lie that we can do everything on our own and embracing the truth that God designed us for deep community with one another. It also means showing up for your siblings when they are in need. And, this may be even harder, allowing them to support you when you're struggling. So that's that one. That's I'm a part of the family. Next, I live invitationally. Living invitationally means always looking for opportunities to invite people into your life while still maintaining healthy boundaries. This might look like inviting people into your home for dinner, inviting them into conversation as you sit at a bar or a coffee shop, inviting them into your family rhythms, or even into the family here at Restore. You see, followers of Jesus have always been people who live their lives marked by the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And here's the thing. If we embody those values in our everyday lives, the people around us will inevitably ask why we choose to live this way. And here's where living invitationally becomes really important. Because when that question comes, like, why do you love like that? Why are you generous like that? Why do you have so much joy when things are hard? When that question comes, I don't want all of us to be ready with some pithy Christian cliche. I want us to be ready with an invitation to invite them into our lives, to our world, to see and experience the goodness of Jesus. That's what it means to live invitationally. Next, I pursue justice for the marginalized. You see, the scriptures, humanity's history, and our present reality all bear witness to the fact that we live in an unjust and broken world. We just prayed over a lot of things that are happening. 
pain and brokenness are a part of our individual stories and our collective stories because sin has brought brokenness into people's lives and into the systems and structures in our world. But as Christians, we believe that God is on a mission of restoration as he ushers in the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. We believe God is constantly working to bring justice and wholeness and peace And then he's calling us to join him in that work. At Restore, this looks like locking arms with our community partners to help bring restoration to people in places in need of help, like we just talked about. A lot of y'all were here last week. That was a part of it. You were bringing justice and helping a community that was hurting. Next, I look for ways to be generous. Scripture teaches that to whom much is given, much is required. And as Christians, we have experienced the, experienced the generosity of God in radical ways. And we should always be looking for ways to share that generosity with others. We are called to generously share our finances, our time, our power, our privilege, our talents, and everything else with others. Not begrudgingly, not out of compulsion, but out of gratitude to God and out of love for our neighbor. Looking for ways to be generous also helps set us free from the chains of materialism and a scarcity mindset. You see, throughout human history, the love of money, the pursuit of material wealth, and the hoarding of resources has always led to pain and brokenness. Generosity is the key to breaking this cycle in our lives and in our world to experience the fullness that Jesus wants for all of us. And then last but not least, I include everyone. See, the church, God's family here, is radically inclusive and diverse. That's why we say all the time here at Restore, we we said in our welcome video, no matter your age, race, gender, socioeconomic status, sexual orientation, lifestyle, or background, you are welcome here and you are welcome in God's family. We believe that God has made all of us differently, but he has made all of us valuable and that we actually are better together. That the church works better when we embrace and empower the differences around us. You know, this is an aside. Tolerance is kind of like a a buzzword in society. It's not new. It's been around for a long time. Like, I understand, like, tolerance, like, that's fine. But, like, who really wants to be tolerated? That's terrible, right? I don't want to be tolerated. When I was a kid, I have a sister who's five years older than me, and I used to annoy her quite a bit. And my parents, their favorite line was, Allison, just tolerate him, okay? (laughs) I don't want to be tolerated. Tolerance is terrible. What if we embraced and empowered the differences around us, not just tolerated them? What if we looked for beautiful connection points in each other, find the Spirit working, Jesus manifesting inside of each other. That's way better than tolerance. I'm sorry. That's an aside. Embrace and empower the differences around us. As I said earlier, we have to understand the table doesn't belong to us. We don't get to decide who is allowed to have a seat and who isn't. Our job is to partner with Jesus as he includes everyone who wants a seat. So that is going to be our next year here at Restore. Six different sermon series around these six concepts not just talking about them, but putting them into practice in our individual lives and in our church family. 
Not just talking about being a place where anyone has a seat at the table and everyone experiences the extravagant love of Jesus, but actually, truly, really doing it. Now, this idea of a table where we all come together and share the love of Jesus, it's not just metaphorical for us. It's actually something that we've done a number of times right here in this room. A lot of you have been a part of it. See, sometimes when we do communion together, pre-COVID, we put these big, long banquet tables on either side. They filled up the entire, both sides of the gym. And then we would put grapes representing wine and crackers representing bread in uh, little baskets on each side of the table. And we would dismiss anyone who wants to go. And everyone would go to the side, and they would line up shoulder to shoulder around the tables together. And we would look at each other in the eyes. And we would realize just how beautifully different we are. How we all come from different places and different backgrounds. And we have different belief systems and different understandings. How we struggle with different things. And we have victory over different things. But that we are united in Jesus around those tables. And we would pass the communion elements. We would take them together. And we would remember Jesus is our great unifier. That here at Restore, we're not after uniformity. Gosh, I would never want to be at a place where everybody looked and acted and did exactly the same. We're after unity in diversity. And that's what we got to do around those tables. Now, we do the tables because communion is this sacred thing in our faith, but also because the table has been at the center of human life since the very beginning of time. We have been gathering around tables to eat and drink and share conversations and tell stories. You see, the table transcends time and place and culture and language because it is this indispensable part of everyday human life. Every single day, if you really think about it, you spend a lot of time at a table. You eat meals and you do work and you have conversations and you go to restaurants and Tables are an integral part of life. I love the way that Shauna Nequist describes it in her book called Bread and Wine, A Love Letter to Life Around the Table. She says, we don't come to the table to fight or to defend. We don't come to prove or to conquer, to draw lines in the sand or to stir up trouble. We come to the table because our hunger brings us there. We come with a need, with fragility, with an admission of our humanity. You see, the table is the great equalizer the level playing field many of us have been looking everywhere for. The table is a place where the doing stops, the trying stops, the masks are removed, and we allow ourselves to be nourished like children. We allow someone else to meet our need. In a world that prides people on not having needs, on going longer and faster, on going without, on powering through, the table is a place of safety and rest in humanity where we are allowed to be as fragile as we feel, to come together, meet each other's needs. But not only is the table sacred in communion and a central part of human life, it is a recurring theme throughout all of Scripture. In fact, the most popular biblical metaphor used to describe God's family and God's kingdom is actually people gathered around a table. Rachel Held Evans captured this truth so perfectly when she wrote, this is, what's, this is what God's kingdom is like. A bunch of outcasts and oddballs gathered at a table, not because they are rich or worthy or good, but because they are hungry and because they said yes, and there's always room for more. The scripture also describes this moment when Jesus comes back 
to finish his work of restoration. And it all centers around this huge party around a banquet table. When Beth Moore looks forward to this day, she pictures it this way. One day, all of us in Christ will sit around an enormous table, exquisitely set with a feast of rich foods prepared in divine kitchens. No one will be left out. No one will be alone. No one will be nameless. No one unknown. No one with nowhere to go. We will finally be home. Man, I look forward to that day. But until then, we are going to be pulling up chairs to Jesus' table here at Restore for anyone and everyone who wants one doing everything we can to make sure that everyone gets to experience the extravagant love of Jesus in beautiful, tangible ways. I want to close this message this morning by reading you all a note that a Restore family member sent me about kind of what it looks like to be that place. Wayne and Audra Preston live in South Carolina. They're actually leaders in our Restore family online. They are this amazing couple that I've grown to love over the last couple of years. Audra is one of the most encouraging people I have ever met. She's always texting me messages of prayers and support. But she sent, we, sent me one recently. It was so moving, I wanted to share it with you all, and she gave me permission to do so. So here's what Audra said. I asked myself the question again and again this week, why are we a part of a church community? And although the answer has many layers, one very important layer is connected to this story. Wayne and I were at a church conference one year. The message one evening was of the banquet table. The speaker had a large, beautifully decorated table at the front. And during the message, he would call pre-picked names to come up and then welcome that individual to the table. And gradually during the message, the table started to fill up. It didn't take long to realize that there were not enough chairs at the table to match the amount of people in the audience. We sat there listening to the message completely conflicted. We wondered which was worse, having our names called or not being called. To be called meant we would belong, but that others wouldn't. Not to be called would mean that we didn't make the cut, and both realizations were so difficult for us. That experience solidified the ache in our hearts that we wanted to be a part of a church community where all were invited and welcomed and called by name to the table. That's what Restore's community is to us, a place where there is always a name card, a chair, and a welcome-to-the-table-thanks-for-coming environment. It's a community of people that fit together from all walks, all journeys of life. She said, we belong to this church because of love. We belong because we are loved. Love is the connection. Love, being loved, showing love, receiving love. This is Restore. I always have a little bit of a hard time concisely describing who I want Restore to be and what I hope it feels like when people come in. But from now on, I think I may just send them that. Because what Audra and Wayne have experienced is exactly what we want everyone to experience. 
a seat at God's all-inclusive table and persistent encounters with Jesus' extravagant love. That's what I want for you. The Preston story and others like it are why we exist as a church. And it's why we're going to spend the next year around the table discovering together what it looks like to follow Jesus and love our neighbors with everything we have. I really hope you jump in with both feet because I think it is going to be a life-changing year. Let me pray for us. The band is going to come back up. God, I thank you for this beautiful morning. I thank you for the miracle it is that we get to meet here. And even in the midst of everything else going on, that we can gather safely, that we can be a community, whether that's here in person or online, that we have a place at your table. And I pray that as we step into this life, this next year that you have for us, that we would do so in a way in a way that changes us. And as you change us individually, change us as a church family. And as you change us as a church family, change this city, change this world. God, we are open, our hands are up. We want you, we want to be used by you. We want to see your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We want to see shalom, peace, abundant goodness in all things and between all things. Use us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.